The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Come on back if you would, and if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Mark, chapter 16, or a Bible app. There are some Bibles in the back, but we just read this passage, so we're going to also show the verses on the screen if that is helpful for you. You can find Mark chapter 16 in a Bible or Bible app, or you can read along on the screen, whichever you prefer. Mark chapter 16. But if I pray briefly for us, Lord, would you again open the eyes of our hearts to behold with amazement and joy and wonder at Christ risen from the grave. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. A little known fact about me, I was born a bit pigeon-toed. My feet were turned inward at birth, and so I had to wear these shoes that, that were turned outward with a bar that fixed them in place. Now, Mindy's shaking. Did anyone else have to do this? You might have a hard time visualizing this, so I have a picture of what this looked like. I know that's not actually me, but that's what I wore as a child. It looks like a torture device, but apparently I tortured my parents with it. I would scoot around on my bottom and bang this bar into things. But those shoes shape and form your feet. They force your feet over time into the right direction, the correct direction. What those shoes did for my feet, Easter wants to do for our hearts. Easter wants to be like those shoes for our souls, shaping our hearts in the, in the right direction, you might say, in response to Christ being raised. Let me show you what I mean from this passage. Jesus was crucified on Friday. We celebrated that here at Good, on Good Friday. His corpse placed in a tomb. And that next day, Saturday, was a day of great grief and, and sorrow for his first disciples. Saturday was a day of hopelessness for them. Pastor Ray Stedman used to use a term of Saturday's children in light of this. Saturday's children. Saturday's children in light of that sad, hopeless day. Stedman said, today's society is filled with Saturday's children where despair grips people's hearts where hopelessness and meaninglessness come crushing in on every side. And maybe you can relate to that this morning. A sense of hopelessness or despair. That's Saturday for Jesus' first followers. But now, now as we read, is Sunday morning. The Passover festivities are over, and these ladies can finally go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, as was the custom. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, Jesus, his corpse. And very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, 
Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, sadly, unfortunately, women in this society were not allowed to be official witnesses in court proceedings. That was certainly wrong. But it, it affirms the truthfulness of this account. Because if you were just making this up, you would write in some male witnesses to verify it. But all of Jesus' male disciples have fled. These ladies are there as the faithful, devoted disciples that first Sunday morning. On that Sunday morning, these faithful ladies, these faithful disciples go to anoint Jesus' dead body out of devotion to him. So we read in verse 4, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So the stone has been supernaturally rolled back, and we know this is an angel sitting in the now empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And the ladies, understandably, it says, they are alarmed. Other translations say amazed. It's a strong word. It has a sense of dread. And angels, well, they try to be helpful in these situations. I don't think they're very helpful when we're alarmed at their presence, but they try to be helpful. And so we read in verse 6, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. Now, I just don't think that helps. <laughs> they're alarmed. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. Now, if you're here wondering what Easter is all about, you're in the right place. That was me for many, many years. I could have told you Easter was about bunnies and chocolate and eggs. But here's the true message of Easter in a nutshell. He has risen. Risen from the grave. He has risen, the angel says. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now notice the next verse. Notice the response of these faithful ladies, these faithful disciples, that first Easter morning, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, you wouldn't end a season of a show on Netflix that way, would you? Trembling, astonishment, and, and fear. That, that's an odd ending. In fact, it's so odd, we, at least to our ears and eyes, that you might see next in your Bible a break that says something like, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And that's because over the centuries, other endings were added to Mark's gospel because the ending is so abrupt. 
But we have so many, many ancient copies of what Mark originally wrote that we can get back to what Mark wrote with a high, high degree of accuracy. And what Mark originally wrote, the best evidence shows, ended right there. Trembling, astonishment, and fear. The best explanation is, this is an intentionally open ending. An open ending, an invitation for you and me to continue the story in our own lives. And what I'd like to do with you is consider that response in our lives. To respond to Easter like they did. Now, other New Testament accounts, of course, include a response of joy to Jesus' resurrection, and that's entirely appropriate. We have four gospel accounts. It's like a diamond in which you can look at different facets to see the beauty and awesome grandeur of Christ. But we're considering this one gospel this year, the gospel of Mark. We want to see that facet. We want this inspired writer to tell us his unique message. We want to consider that response in our own lives. So main idea, main point, Jesus' resurrection calls for a response of trembling, astonishment, you might say fear. I would summarize that as a, a holy sense of awe. A holy awe. In other words, Easter wants to do for our hearts what those shoes did for my feet. Shaping our hearts in response to Christ's resurrection with a holy sense of awe and wonder and worship. So we should ask, why? Why be in awe of the fact that Jesus is risen? Why? I mean, I grant you, coming alive from the dead is a big deal. But what is the significance of Christ's resurrection in Mark's gospel? We must think of this as a, a unit, a, a book, a piece of literature. And we're only reading the ending like you're reading any other book or watching a movie. You can't just see the ending and make sense of the entire book. We must consider what went before the ending. And what came before this could be summed up in two main themes. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So to make sense of that ending, to make sense of that awe, in response to Christ's resurrection, I want to see with you those themes in Mark's gospel a little bit and see them culminating in the empty tomb. Who Jesus is and what he has done that this sense of awe might be formed in our hearts. So first, let's consider the awe at who the risen Jesus is. 
First, a holy sense of awe at who the risen Jesus is. So let's get the context. The book begins with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So chapter 1, verse 1, that's Jesus' identity. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But after that, in the first half of the book, no humans recognize him. It's almost like he's a superhero in disguise or something. In chapter 2, he says to a, a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders say that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins against God because they didn't realize he's the son of God. In chapter 3, Jesus' own family come to seize him, saying he's out of his mind, must be having a breakdown because they didn't realize who he truly is, the son of God. In chapter 4, Jesus' disciples are in a boat, caught in a terrible storm. They think they're about to drown. The ship is going down. Jesus stills the winds and the waves with a word, peace be still. And the disciples are filled with great fear. Does that sound familiar? They're filled with great fear and say, who is this? This is what Mark is building for us. They didn't recognize him. In chapter 6, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. He's rejected. People say, we know his family. We know his mom and dad. Who does he think he is? because they don't recognize him. Finally, the turning point of this book of Mark is in chapter 8, where Jesus asks his disciples the crucial question, who do you say I am? And if you know Mark's gospel, you know Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Finally, someone got it right, at least in part. And then this culminates, this sense of identity of Jesus culminates in chapter 15 when a Roman soldier sees how Jesus dies and says, truly, this man was the Son of God. You see what Mark is doing. He begins with, he's the Christ, the Son of God. He gets to the cross and a Roman soldier says, he's the Son of God. Mark is showing us who this is. And the resurrection, as it were, verifies that identity. The resurrection is like the blue check mark on Twitter. It's verifying that this indeed is the Christ, the Messiah, the divine Son of God. God himself come in the flesh. That's why these ladies are trembling. That's why these ladies are astonished in Mark's gospel. That's why they are even afraid. Because Easter, friends, is an encounter with the divine. God, the Son, has come in the flesh. That's why there is this holy awe and fear. Think about it like this. If you're in a remote area tonight and it's a clear night and you look up in the night sky and you see the, the Milky Way across the sky, billions of stars, you'd be in awe. Or let's say later today you go out to Anza Borrego and you see the super bloom happening. The desert filled with all these colors, you would be in awe. Or let's say you take a longer drive, you go to the Grand Canyon 
and you peer into that vast expanse before you, taking your breath away, you'd be in awe. Well, imagine encountering the maker of all those things. That's Mark's point. Trembling? Astonishment? Let's add fear? Because this is God the Son wearing our humanity alive from the dead. Now that means a couple of things. It means, well, it, it so profoundly means God himself has entered our suffering and experienced it personally. God himself knows our suffering personally. The divine Son of God left heavenly glory to come to earth. He was misunderstood by all, slandered, wrongly arrested, condemned, mocked, beaten, tortured, and crucified. Maybe you feel like that sense of being a Saturday's child, like I mentioned earlier. You can relate to that sense of misery or hopelessness or, or discouragement even over hard circumstances in your life. Maybe related to your job or your finances or a health crisis or a difficult situation with your family. You're grieving the loss of a loved one. I mean, life sometimes can be very, very hard. And in those times, don't we want a friend who understands? Someone who can relate to what we're going through? Easter says, that's what you have in the Son of God. That's what you have in the divine Son of God who is raised. He understands your suffering. And the resurrection means he's come to do something about it. The maker of all things is able to remake all things. For he rose. Pastor Tim Keller, he writes about Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven. The Raven. In this poem, a, a sinister bird can only repeat the word, nevermore. We have a bird repeating this one word, nevermore, nevermore, nevermore. And Keller says it conveys the, the irreversibility that we experience in this life. As we get older, our, our youth is gone irreversibly. Inevitably, our health will be gone irreversibly. Things don't go your way. The things you wanted to have happen don't happen irreversibly. You, you can't go back and change things. But Keller says this is where the resurrection comes in. God, the Son, is alive. That means a fundamental restoration. That means we get our bodies back better than you can imagine. That means we get our lives back better than you can comprehend. The resurrection is the reversal of all of that irreversibility. It is the end, he says, the end of nevermore. As D.A. Carson once put it, you are not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. I think that's helpful.
You're not experiencing anything that a good resurrection won't fix. All because of who Jesus is. All because of his identity, the divine son of God who is raised. So put your heart in that first shoe. That forming, shaping shoe. To begin to create a sense of awe in your heart at who this is who is raised. But recall, Mark has two two main themes in this book. He says many things, but two main themes. Who Jesus is, and then also what Jesus has done. I think we should also have some trembling, some astonishment, some holy awe at what Christ has accomplished. So secondly, let's consider that. Secondly, awe at what the risen Jesus has done. Awe, holy awe, at what the risen Jesus has accomplished. At that turning turning point in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, when Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus then begins to teach his disciples what kind of Messiah he's come to be that he would be handed over to the Romans and killed. Now, to Peter, that's preposterous. Messiahs don't get killed. Messiahs win. Messiahs conquer. So Peter rebukes Jesus. It's not very street smart. And so Jesus responds with some words that I think had a little bit of sting to them. Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And from that point in Mark's gospel, this book moves inexorably to the cross. In chapter 10, Jesus is going steadfastly to Jerusalem, where death threats loom against him. But in chapter 10, he's leading the way to Jerusalem. He's heading there steadfastly, and it says the disciples are amazed and afraid. Does that sound familiar? It's how the ladies respond at the empty tomb. The disciples are amazed and afraid as he heads to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 10, Jesus tells them what he's come to do. He says, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. A ransom. A payment that Freeze a slave. And friends, we are that slave left to ourselves. We are born slaves to sin. We are hardwired for rebellion and no way of ransoming ourselves. But Jesus says, I've come on a rescue mission to free the captives to bear the penalty of their sin, to endure judgment in their place that they might be forgiven and freed. I wonder if you'd look back to verse 7 in Mark 16. The angel says, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now why single out Peter? He's one of the disciples. You could just say, go tell his disciples. Why mention Peter specifically there? Why single him out? Well, there's a good reason. Because a couple of days earlier, Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. 
Never met the guy three times. His friend, teacher, and Lord. And Peter wept bitterly over that sin. A true Saturday's child. But it's Sunday now. And the angel says, tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter that denier. Make sure you tell Peter, weeping over his sin. Why? Because Peter will be forgiven and restored and freed, never to live as Saturday's child again. Maybe you can relate to Peter. A Saturday's child because of your own sense of guilt or shame. And that can be true misery. And that can produce real despair. There was a movie made in the 1960s called Captain Newman, M.D. Gregory Peck plays the main character, Captain Newman, who heads a psychiatric ward in a military hospital where he's treating patients who have severe, severe PTSD from World War II. One patient had been a gunner on a bomber that was shot down. And this man was able to escape, but his friend, the pilot, was trapped in the cockpit and was screaming for help. But this man in the movie kept running, fearing for his own life, left his friend. And so he was now laboring under this terrible sense of guilt. Another had gotten left behind by his unit, but he managed to survive by hiding in a cellar of a home. And he felt guilty of such remorse that he never tried to find his unit. He just stayed in the security of this dark cellar. He could no longer speak. He was so overcome with guilt and shame. A third man in the movie had several people under his command to get killed as a result of following his orders. And the sense of shame was overwhelming for him. Can you relate to that at all? The sense of guilt, shame, a despair. Maybe like Peter, you've, you've let others down. We all have. Or maybe others are placing that sense of shame on you. If so, put on these Easter shoes. Have holy awe, friend, formed in your hearts at what Christ has done. Like Peter, you can be completely restored to God, forgiven and freed if you believe. You see, the empty tomb, friends, the empty tomb says Jesus' sacrifice was fully sufficient. The empty tomb says the ransom price has been completely paid. So if you're here and you've not yet trusted Jesus Christ like that, I, I would urge you to do so. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. You're in the right place. Surrender to Christ is how I like to say it. Surrender to him. That means turning from going your own way. In our day, that's Surrendering a sense of autonomy. I'm just going to live for myself. It's surrendering to Christ as Lord and trusting in him as Savior. Trusting in his life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God, to free you 
and restore you like Peter was restored. So come to him even now, I urge you. Believe him. But maybe you're already a believer in Jesus, but as we can often be, you're far more aware of your sin than you are in awe of what Christ has done. You know, an awareness of sin is a good thing. An awareness of sin in the life of the believer is a good and needful thing, but not an end in itself. Awareness of sin should be a means to awe. Awareness of our own guilt and sin should position us for holy awe in light of that ransom price being paid. God holds out to us here in awe that keeps us amazed at grace. An awe that Christ's payment was sufficient. An awe that the ransom has been paid. And we live as Saturday's child no more. Friends, do you see how Easter, the resurrection, means to put our hearts into those shoes I was wearing? It means to put our souls into those forming, shaping shoes that we become more like these faithful leaders of faithful ladies at the empty tomb. That increasingly there's a sense of holy trembling and, and astonishment and, and awe at who Jesus is and what he has done that the divine Son of God has paid your ransom price, is raised, and is returning. So let's pray together. And if in any way you can relate to being a Saturday's child this morning, as I think we all can in ways, Bring that to God right now in Christ. Might mean trusting Jesus Christ as Savior for the first time. You can simply say to him in the silence of your heart, I'm sorry for my sins. I acknowledge them. I believe Jesus died for my sins. Come into my life. Bring me to yourself, please, through Jesus. It's that sense of sorry and thank you. And please, it's turning to Christ and trusting in Christ. For others, maybe you're laboring under a sense of guilt or shame that God would not have you carry anymore. Shame for letting others down or shame that others have put on yourself. I believe God would want you to hear the good news that Peter heard of restoration and forgiveness to live as a Saturday's child no more.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you. Thank you for this unique gospel ending. Thank you for this unique facet of the diamond of Christ's finished work. Would you, Holy Spirit, form in our hearts a similar sense of trembling and astonishment and fearful, joyful awe in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. We thank you in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.